Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. The U.S. is weighing a chip bill to supposedly improve chips' competitiveness with China. Is this a wise move which will boost the U.S. chip manufacturing? What does it say about the ongoing tech race between the U.S. and China? And the conflict in Ukraine has disrupted grain exports from one of the biggest producers in the world. Can a deal ensure the grain gets to the people who need it the most? Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you live from Beijing. I'm Liu Xin. The U.S. Senate on Tuesday voted to move ahead on a bill aimed at boosting the U.S. semiconductor industry and improving competitiveness with China. Small in size but big in value, semiconductors have become an essential component at the heart of economic growth worldwide and a geopolitical focal point between the U.S. and China. So what impact might the bill have if passed on the global semiconductor industry? And will U.S. efforts pay off to bar technology from reaching Chinese chipmakers. I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Zhang Fan, Associate Professor at Beijing Normal University and from Indianapolis, uh, the United States, by uh, Craig Zeidelson, Assistant Professor of uh, Operations and Supply Chain Management at the University of Indianapolis. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So. The very latest just came in. The U.S. Senate on Tuesday voted uh, 64 to 34 to move ahead with a slimmed down version of a legislation to provide up to billions of dollars in subsidies and tax credits for the, semi -industry, for the semiconductor industry in the United States. And people are saying this is setting the stage for potential votes to pass the legislature in the Senate and the House of Representatives by the end of uh, next week. Professor Zhang, exactly what is this bill all about? Um, so it contains um, the uh, stipulations to set up several funds to basically subsidize um, construction of uh, fabs, uh, the, the, the semiconductor manufacturing, chip manufacturing plants in the US. Uh, it's $52 billion in that, including overhead. And then uh, another 20 some billion in tax credit for, uh, for buying equipment and all that. So essentially, it, it, is, uh, it is just a subsidy for U.S. companies, especially Intel, for example, to hmm. set up the plans. Professor Zeidelson, the bill is a condensed version of a $250 billion bill the Senate passed in June last year. But uh, uh, that bill has faced a filibuster and no final decisions have been made. What exactly happened with the, that bill and why? That was a $250 billion bill. I think that was called the Innovation and Competition uh, Act. And of that $253 billion, 200 of it was specifically earmarked for competition with China. Um, as you said, that has been stuck um, since last summer without moving forward. The bill had passed, but the funding hadn't. Uh, so Commerce uh, Secretary decided to move forward uh, immediately with a slimmed down version of the bill, which both the House version and the 2022, uh, the 2022 House version and the 2021 Senate version both shared. So the expectation was if uh, Commerce Secretary can move forward with just the slimmed down version that was common to both, they could get a vote before the August uh, recess of Congress. 
Hmm. This latest bill, or the slimmed down version, is dubbed, or the original version actually, is uh, dubbed by some as a CHIPS China competition bill. Um, Professor Zhang, does that explain the urgency of uh, the lawmakers to push forward this bill? Is the US government trying to contain China's semiconductor industry? Well, China is sort of a uh, catch-all for all the uh, boogeymen. Um, whenever people want funding, they, they evoke China. The US military does this, uh, they call China the pacing challenge. In reality, this bill really doesn't have too much to, to do with China. Um, China is growing fast in semiconductors, but currently it's, it's in the uh, trailing edge, not the cutting edge. And in that area, the US is still dominating. The US is uh, is lacking in, in the leading edge. And their competitor is really South Korea and, and the Taiwan region of China, really. And, and also the reason why China has been going so fast is because of the US sanctions. They carved out the Chinese market for the Chinese manufacturers, and they're now lifting that sanctions. So this has nothing to do with China. This is just the it's essentially, it's, it's the semiconductor makers trying to get some subsidies, and there are some excuses for it. For example, uh, you know, if, if war breaks out in the Taiwan Strait and America is not going to get uh, chips from, from, from Taiwan, then, uh, then their, their military can go, go ahead. But in fact, the military uses older generation robust uh, chips and U.S. dominates in that. So, so all the excuses they push out really doesn't go to the core. The core is just somebody trying to get the subsidies. Mm. Um, Professor Ziderson, your take on the issue? Well, as I understand uh, the procedural vote uh, that happened this week, one of the issues was uh, under the CHIP Act, if any company receives money from it, that they couldn't uh, invest any of that money in China. So I guess I do see a, a Chinese aspect to this, but I am in agreement that uh, the predominance of chips being manufactured in China are the um, older generation, but the supply chains are complicated. Most of the US companies that have chip manufacturing capabilities uh, are manufacturing the front end of those chips in the US, but they're doing the assembly, packaging, and testing in China. So uh, a wrinkle in this, this bill is, does it, does it complicate supply chains? Is it still going to be possible to do the assembly testing and packaging in China um, because it's not economical to do those in the U.S.? So basically, it's, it's, a, it's slightly complicated as well. But uh, uh, to pick up what uh, Professor Zhang said, we know that uh, economies in Asia are currently the biggest chip producers. For instance, 75% of manufacturing occurs in South Korea, Japan, and China. But China has been investing heavily on the chip industry, especially chip right. innovation. China's growth has something like 30% year on year for the past five years. So I think pretty much 10% of the chip market is made in China, and China is expecting to double that um, of the next right. 10 what years. I yeah, what I was saying, basically, the fact, the mere fact that China is boosting its own chip innovation and manufacturing is precisely the result of U.S. sanctions, right? The U.S. imposed chip uh, limitations uh, to China, and now the United States is seeing a problem with China's efforts to catch up as a result of their export controls. Professor Zhang, do you see a problem there? I mean, I see this as a problem of, uh, that's self-created by the United States. Right, and it's, it's just going to get worse because China actually accounts for 60%, 60% of the entire global semiconductor market. Um, so the U.S. not only stopped its own companies from selling to China, but also other companies uh, from other countries. Uh, 
to sell them to China if they they have any equipment that contains any little bit of U.S. technology in it. So in essence, they're forcing, if they don't want to give up the Chinese market, um, they're being forced to get rid of the U.S. to de-Americanize the technology. So that's one thing. Another thing is by this bill, they're building new equipment, new fabs in the U.S., bringing extra capacity. So despite whatever people say about uh, semiconductor shortage in the past two years, in the recent weeks, the uh, semiconductors drop prices have been dropping like a stone because of over the glut of, uh, of capacity coming online. Um, so all this extra capacity will be competing with Taiwan, will be competing with South Korea, will be competing with Europe on the remaining 40%. And by that time, the US, if, if it wants to survive, it has to do something like what they did, did to Japan in the 1980s, uh, trump up some anti-dumping stuff uh, and, and try to, to kill off the uh, South Korean uh, and Taiwan's uh, uh, industries. So that would really disrupt the global supply chain, you might. Right. We actually have been looking at uh, fluctuations, to say the least, uh, or shortage of chips in the global market because of all kinds of reasons, geopolitical disputes, the pandemic. So, Professor Zydelson, do you think such a kind of bill is going to help with that uh, situation? I think we have to look at the $53 billion and put it into perspective. If we look at the three largest chip companies, uh, TSMC, Samsung, Intel, mm -hmm. their investment uh, in 2021 alone was something like $100 billion. And we're talking about a $53 billion um, project for, for all of the United States. So, um, and if we compare that to China, um, Chinese investment 2014 through 18, we're looking at probably $30 billion a year. So it's a $53 billion nice, but is it really going to redefine what's going on in the markets? Uh, I, don't, I don't see that. So, so basically you're saying that this is a drop in the, in the bucket of what the United States needs to boost its semiconductor industry? Yes. Professor Zhang, what do you think of uh, this argument? Because basically the United States has been criticizing China for so-called unfair trade practices, right? These state subsidies or industrial policies or, or you know, uh, all kinds of uh, incentives from the country, from the government to boost a certain industry, calling China state capitalism whatsoever. And now, basically, are we seeing the U.S. copying what China is doing to boost certain industries? Well, it, it's kind of a do as I say, not as I do situation. Uh, and they're not really copying China. They, they, they invented the game. I mean, um, in the 1980s, the Japanese took over the entire semiconductor market and the US had to push them out. Um, one of the things is, is, uh, is subsidy from the Department of Defense through the DAPA fund, DAPA fund um, setting up something called Simapec. Um, and, um, and also in Japan, in, in Europe, there's a European Chips Act as well. So, so this sort of thing is, is widespread subsidies. Um, it's not even the problem, as um, as the other guest just just mentioned. It's a drop in the bucket. People might just set up a symbolic factory, grab the money, and then and then do it elsewhere. Anyways, um, but the, the the main issue is they have other things that they can do. For example, as I mentioned earlier, in, in the 80s, they. Uh, they, they basically forced Japan to give up the market by saying that they're dumping, dumping and they can't dump not only into the US, but globally. And they have to open up a guaranteed 20% of their domestic market for, for the US. That kind of coercive measures uh, in the end really completely destroyed Japan. Um, in, in, in Is that going to trade. succeed with um, China? So Is any such attempt would succeed with China as a much bigger market? 
Well, they, they've already been trying to, to to curtail anything that China can do. Uh, but the thing is, um, with Japan's example, um, the East Asian um, economies will probably be very cautious about voting. <laughs> so, so I, I don't fault that 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 that, hap, that they, they're having the, the effect that they intend, but it doesn't stop them trying. Um, and so I see more chip wars uh, going forward. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. One last question, because since the last time the United States imposed sanctions on chip exports to China or provision to China, how much has China progressed in terms of uh, innovating its own chips and uh, investing in the chip industry in what a lot of people call the chatboards? You know, you're being choked in certain core in technologies. Basically, you're forced to rely on self. How much progress has China made because of the U.S. measures? Um, so, so basically, before that, um, China doesn't have much of a semiconductor industry. Right. Um, people, graduate students, the students, they go to software platforms. They pay a huge amount of money. The microelectronics students, there aren't any. Um, but all, all of a sudden, because of the U.S. sanctions, uh, there are a lot of funding going into all sorts of cheap design companies in particular. This is one thing that China has done really well, is to design specific purpose chips. Um, and, uh, and then also in terms of manufacturing, also there are many steps in making a, a computer chip. And there are Chinese companies, Chinese competitors, three or four of them for each single category. And also special, specialized gas, specialized chemicals. Mm -hmm. So that is, so in the world as a whole, no country has that kind of complete coverage on everything. Actually that's happening in China, although they're not the leading edge, they, they, they're, one or two generations behind the leading edge, but they're going up fast and they're competing against each other. Um, so, so I foresee pretty good progress um, in the future because yeah. you know it's not new technology. People have already done it and yeah. proven it can be done. So, basically, it. the idea that a lot of people criticize China for relying on itself—you have to understand why China are forced to do that in the first place because of restrictions and sanctions from the outside. Anyway, we have to leave it there. Many thanks to. Zhang Fan, Associate Professor at Beijing Normal University, and Craig Zydels, an Assistant Professor at the University of Indianapolis. Many thanks, and uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the conflict in Ukraine is threatening grain exports from one of the world's biggest suppliers. Can a deal be reached despite the ongoing conflict? Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Delegations from Turkey, Russia, Ukraine and the United Nations are to meet this week to discuss the safe export of Ukrainian grain. Commonly called one of the world's key bread baskets, Ukraine supplied 10% of global wheat exports last year. With global hunger levels reaching new highs, concerns are rising over an international food crisis. Many are expecting a deal to be made that would help secure the passage of millions of tons of grain through the Black Sea, but what hurdles need to be cleared? What's at stake? I'm joined by Professor Sheng Yu from the School of Advanced Agriculture of uh, Peking University. Professor Sheng, thank you very much for joining us. So the meeting that I'm talking about is uh, mainly about U Ukraine's export of grain, including the shipment of about 22 million tons of uh, grain stuck because of the war. And the Turkish Defense Minister, Hulusi 
Aka said an expected deal would include joint controls for checking ships in harbors and Turkey ensuring the safety of Black Sea export routes. Help us understand the extent of the problem concerning the export of uh, Ukraine's grain first. Thank you for your question. I think, I mean, the global supply chain is very essential for international food trade. This is in particular important for uh, uh, the export, food export from Ukraine to the rest of the world. Now, since the early part of this year, because of the conflict in the region, you can see that a lot of uh, trade actually has been, hung, uh, has been stopped. Now, in this type of situation, how to maintain the supply side I mean, through improving the, the efficiency of this logistics so through the sea transportation is essential in this case. Now, the efforts made uh, in particular, I mean, from the neighborhood countries actually will help to resolve this type of situation. A good example was that, I mean, since the early 2020, when COVID-19 comes in, even the direct impact is not on the supply side, but affect this type of supply chain. It caused a huge increase in terms of the food price in the international market. So I would say that, I mean, given the current situation, the efforts from different, I mean, countries, including like Turkey and others, who are actually trying to help to smooth this type of, uh, I mean, logistic, I mean, transport, reducing the transportation cost will help to uh, uh, reduce the pressure on the food price in the international market. Yeah. We are joined also by Dr. Tang Kiwi, founder of Waveney Economics, joining me from Singapore. So welcome, Dr. Tang. Um, we understand that Ukraine and Russia produce almost a third of the world's wheat and barley and half of its sunflower oil. Russia and Belarus are the world's number two and number three producers of potash, a key ingredient of uh, fertilizer. And uh, the war is expected to be to still be a long way to go. So Dr. Tan, how do you view the repercussions of the conflict on global food safety? And uh, five months we've seen the conflict dragging on. Is the situation still getting worse? Well, it is it's going to be prolonged for a while as long as the sanctions imposed by Europe and the U.S. continue in, in Russia. Because uh, once the sanctions are there, the natural gas prices will remain high. Natural gas prices actually are used to make uh, fertilizers. Actually, the corn wheat prices have come down. It used to be about 1,200. Now it's back to about 800, around near where the when the conflict in Ukraine started. But that's one thing. Uh, but uh, it, it is a bigger problem. I mean, food crisis is something that the world has been facing. And it boils down to three other factors. Number one, they, uh, there's too much money around and the money is not distributed equally. So the poor are not getting the money that they need to buy. Secondly, actually there's enough land to grow grains for the world. It's just that all the the market forces channel these grains to maybe to make alternative fuels or mm -hmm. to to do other things that world cannot afford. Yeah, and of course the third thing is COVID has made things disrupted the supply chain. Mm. Professor Shen, according to the UN, in the past year global food prices have risen by nearly one third. Uh, fertilizer price has grown, has grown by more than half and uh, oil prices by almost two-thirds. Can you help us further clarify the picture? What does that really mean for the people, especially in developing countries, who are getting hit the worst? 
Uh, generally, from economic perspective, we would say that uh, the impact uh, that has been occurred for, uh, because of the current conflict is mainly coming, I mean, uh, two channels. One is that actually it will directly affect the supply of the food, as what I mean we discussed just now. On the second part of things, we will say that I mean uh, because of I mean the conflict, which is affecting the input prices, this also will cause the producer I mean to increase the producer cost. Now, in this particular I mean sense, actually I mean uh, the the supply of the food will be reduced to some extent. Although I mean we can say that this general impact would be uh, roughly being uh, how to say reduced by other countries increasing their supply. But uh, this impact on the expectation would be, to some extent, in short term, would be heavy. Now, if we treat this thing as one perspective, the other thing that we, we, we want to, I mean, uh, explore this issue for developing countries in particular. Now, generally speaking, that, uh, I mean, throughout the whole world perspective, supply and demand side actually is roughly equal, I mean, from uh, a general, general perspective. Okay. However, yeah. in global food trade, uh, developing countries always in disadvantaged situation. Most right. of the developing countries, because the high population intensity, that I mean, their domestic supply couldn't uh, feed for the domestic I mean demand. So this made it. I mean, the the, the, the food trade has been mainly dominated by exporting okay. from export uh, for developed countries to developing countries. Mm. So in this sense, you can see that uh, both impact will impose more restriction on the food trade and thus impose more negative impact on developing countries' food supply, in, in particular from um, international market. Yeah. A joint statement, Dr. Tan. A joint statement was released on July the 15th by several international organizations calling for urgent action and immediate support to the vulnerable. It cites figures from the World Food Programme, for instance, uh, by June this year. The number of acute food insecure people increased to 345 million around the world. That's more than doubling the pre-pandemic levels. How serious is the situation and how much hope can we give to the deal that's being discussed between Turkey, Russia, Ukraine and the United Nations to um, smooth out, let's say, the exports of Ukrainian grain? Well, the, the, the grains might start to export outside, but it's just that the cube, the situation is acute. A recent satellite photo shows that all the wheat producing regions of the world are going to be underperforming this year, except two countries because of favorable weather, and that's Russia. So this crisis is going to continue. We, we can't run away from it. I think the problem is because, you know, over the years, the past decades, we've been, through globalization, we've been specializing. So a lot of these poor countries should have been growing their own staple food, but they are not. They are relying on other countries. And that's now the problem is multiplied. So basically a short-term problem compounded by longer-term issues. Um, what is the impact of sanctions? How big of an impact uh, have the sanctions been, Dr. Tan? Sanctions on Russia, you mean? Yes. Oh, well, I mean, you know, the Ukraine says that they cannot get their grains out of, uh, of all the pot right. in Odessa. But uh, Russia is saying it's not the case. I mean, it depends on which media you read. It's because actually the, the, the sea, the Black Seas are actually still mined by the Ukraine. So Russia is actually trying to 
get these mines, get Ukrainians to remove the war, the mines so that the ships can start flying. I, I think we are doing that now. They are already are doing that. They are doing that now. So probably the problem will be ease in the next few months. The United, side, United States issued a fact sheet, uh, Professor Sheng, on July the 14th, which clarifies that certain types of transactions related to agricultural commodities and agricultural equipment, as well as medicine and medical devices, are not targets of U.S. sanctions on Russia. Uh, so what kind of uh, effects do you think U.S. sanctions on Russia have had on the shortage of food situation? and? Uh, has the United States realized that the sanctions are also probably hurting themselves as well a little bit? As just now, Professor Tang has mentioned that, uh, I mean, the direct impact of this war on the food supply throughout the whole world on two sides. One is the directly negative impact on the production and supply of the, I mean, the current produced food. The other side actually is the sanction itself because the sanction will cause the limited or restricted export from the second largest country, which is, I mean, food supply, I mean, in the region, which is the Russia, not only in terms of the food itself, but also in terms of uh, these, I mean, intermediate inputs like fertilizer and other things. Now, as you can see that uh, now, uh, if there is more consideration that it can be, I mean, put into the current negotiation in particular, that, I mean, those necessities, I would say the necessities, for, I mean, food production and supply type of things can be exempted from this sanction. It will not only help to relax the current short-term constraint, but also will generate more longer period of impact in particular to meet the demand and supply sets throughout the world. Finally, Dr. Tan, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres admitted the first meeting in weeks between Russia and Ukraine took a critical step uh, forward last Wednesday, but cautioned that more technical work will need to be uh, will still be needed to reach an agreement. How much could a deal, if reached, help ease the current shortage of grain and uh, food around the world? I think it will need ease a bit because I I, I feel that the West will continue to sanction Russia and gas prices will remain high and gas prices remain high um, fertilizers and all the all the things that you depend on fertilizers will remain high so i would see that uh, this food crisis will continue for probably another a year at least that's a your year. prediction okay we yeah. will keep a close watch on the situation many thanks to our guests dr tanky we founder of waveney economics and professor sheng yu from the school of advanced agriculture at peking university with that we come to the end of this edition of the point with me lucian as always you can follow us on facebook and twitter using the handle lucian in beijing you've got the point